Great, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, sometimes I think I'd rather hear a sermon discussion after a stimulating sermon, uh, but it struck me um, that uh, what we just talked about today and what we've some of the sermons we've been talking about, uh, incredible parallels with what we're now doing. For example, uh, this whole series is about turning points. And indeed, uh, many of the turning points in Christianity are certainly linked up with major turning points that are happening um, in the world at the moment. So we saw that the uh, that the rise of the Roman Empire, and finally in 325, Constantine uh, converts to Christianity. And so we have this idea of, isn't it great that finally God's will is being done in the world, and now we have a Christian empire, and isn't it great now we could use the resources of the civil Roman uh, uh, government, uh, the Pax Romana, to spread the gospel, and what happens the Goths come and it goes away. Well, uh, where we're at in our study right now, our fifth uh, week now, can't believe it, uh, we have the rise of Christendom uh, somewhere around the 12th century. Uh, the West, which has been under siege and war for a long time, the Crusades start around uh, 1095. Uh, Rome and the papacy is beginning to grow. Prior to uh, 1200, the bishops of Rome were there. They were recognized as one of the heads of uh, the West. But until almost 1050, the Eastern Orthodox, with their patriarchs and with an emperor in the Byzantine Empire and the West, we're still dialoguing, so Christianity was a little more fluid. After 1050 is what they call the Great Schism, and the East and the West rather fall apart. That starts the rise of the papacy uh, in Western Europe, and Rome begins to be a monarchy. Uh, most people don't realize that even today, going to the UN, there is no religious uh representation in the UN except for the Vatican, because to this day, the Pope is not merely a religious leader, but owns the Vatican City. At one point, one-third of Italy was part of the Vatican, uh, the papal lands. They had a papal army. I mean, they did everything that um, a modern monarchy would do. And over time, that property was lost, but that's the rise of the papacy. So we're going to jump in today to the Reformation. I hope you appreciated and enjoyed, in that you can enjoy history like me, uh, that you enjoyed last week where we tried to show you uh, that indeed long before Luther and Calvin, God was working in history uh, and I think that's the theme of a lot of our sermons this fall as well, which is great. So we're going to move on. So uh, Luther and Calvin. Uh, context is everything. Uh, Europe around 1400, 
France and England are the newest states that are coming together. Prior to that, uh, there was no great unity. In terms of a modern state, it's really France and England. Uh, only later on do we get Spain, uh, do we get uh, other areas, but we're going to sort of lead you through that. So here's the context, the background to the Reformation. First of all, uh, we talked about it last week, uh, roughly 1300 to 1500 is considered Renaissance. As you know, the word Renaissance, right, in French, uh, coined, I think, by Jules Michelet in the 19th century, although Burkhart gets credit for it, um, is a rebirth, right, naissance, birth, uh, rebirth, and it's a rebirth of the classical ancient world of Greece and Rome. The two modern states that developed, France and uh, England, then later on uh, Spain, Portugal, smaller areas uh, develop as well, a lot of republics and free cities. Christendom, though, is divided. We looked at that last week in the, uh, between uh, 1378 and 1417, there's two if not three popes, and that really kills uh, the idea of the unity of the Roman Catholic Church that never does heal. There is a conciliar movement, that is to say, a council got together in Constance and elected one pope, and the fact that the council had the authority to elect one pope in 1417 goes back to Rome. The council doesn't want to give up its authority as uh, in the church uh, and the papacy and the council have a fight. Basically, that fight goes on to the Council of Trent uh, until uh, most of those who were supporting the council have now protested and joined other churches. That still doesn't end, however, because um, even if you've ever read Francis Oakley uh, going back, and there's a big struggle in history about conciliar things and Vatican II and the Catholic Church, that's still uh, going on today, so it's, a, it's an overall fight. Uh, I better stop there. Uh, we're going to talk about Luther now, but context is everything. Once again, not too many people understand what the Holy Roman Empire is, so we have to explain this for a moment. The Holy Roman Empire was a swath of German-speaking lands. We can't talk about Germany uh, until the 19th century. We can't talk about Italy until the 19th century as a modern state. Uh, at the time of Luther, there were something like 400 separate little entities with some kind of Germanic language not unified. So if we talk about the Holy Roman Empire, it's, it's like talking about the European Union today, right? It's a, uh, it's a compilation. It's a confederation, not a federation. So what does the Holy Roman Empire look like? Well, the dream of a Roman Empire and a Christianized Roman Empire was there. Charlemagne, uh, sort of a flash in the pan around 800, divided Europe up to his three sons, and we sort of still have the uh, boundaries of Europe. I can't even go into that, but just to show you, uh, it's in 1356 that they organized a little bit more and they organize, uh, if you see a big uh, triangle, at the very top 
are seven electors. They call them electors because each of those grand uh, uh, princes uh, get to elect one of them to become the so-called Holy Roman Emperor, but it's, again, a kind of paper empire. It's like the European Union uh, at the top. Now, what's interesting about this is that three of the electors, however, are archbishoprics. That is to say, once again, like the papacy owning one-third of Italy and being the monarch of those lands with armies and so forth, and then also claiming spiritual uh, leadership over all of, uh, of Western Europe, uh, in these archbishops, it's an archbishop, it's a state land, uh, and so, for example, Connecticut could be an archbishopric, yet it's kind of like a state, right? We don't know what that is. So three of those. Um, four are secular. Secular in Latin, seculum, means earthly. So these are different uh, kings or dukes. Uh, just to let you know, two of them, however, are going to be involved in the Reformation. The account of the Palatine of the Rhine uh, becomes reformed, basically, and the du- Duke of Saxony, Duchy of Saxony, becomes Lutheran. So here's Luther. Just before we get started as well, there's all these sort of component parts that you need to know to fit things together. Uh, if you've ever thought about church government and polity, there's really three basic forms. Now, in essence, today in the 21st century, there's a lot of churches that, that fit between, perhaps, right? But here's the three. And it's interesting how in the Reformation they're more clearly seen as tendencies of people, right? It's, is it the chicken or the egg? Is it nurture or nature, right? You can go back and forth. But there is a correlation here, I think, that's interesting to look at. Uh, typically, the Roman Catholic Church, Lutheran, and Church of England appealed to places in Europe that were already leaning toward monarchy. They understood that. It's bread and the bone of the culture itself. Uh, it's a top-down. Um, governing Church governing structures often then follow those socioeconomic things. We call that Episcopal has nothing to do with the Episcopal Church, right? The Roman Catholic Church has an Episcopal Church structure, okay? Uh, Typically, Reformed and Calvinists, we're going to see, appeal to a merchant elite. A lot of the free cities, a lot of places where monarchy had been already given up prior to the spread of the Reformed or Calvinism, tends to have a merchant elite connected to it. Free cities, independents, where small republics are already uh, starting, and uh, there's an oligarchical model that often uh, emerges, and the church governing structure then follows what we call a Presbyterian uh, church government, not necessarily Presbyterian church, but it just fits. Other groups in Europe, especially in the 15th century, uh, appeal among peasants. There's a lot of peasant revolts. There's new urban workers uh, that are poor, however, and they follow a democratic model. Uh, it's not democracy, but democratic in sense of egalitarian, and that we call congregational. So we'll just keep those in mind um, maybe later on uh, when we can look at them. Hard to find maps, I find, that are accurate enough 
after the Reformation has sort of settled to find out which parts of Europe are Roman Catholic, which parts of Europe are Church of England, Reformed, and Lutheran, together with Anabaptists and so forth. Uh, someday I'm going to have to make my own map, but you know how hard maps are, but this probably does a pretty good job. Our interest, of course, in this church would be to look uh, especially where Calvinists Reformed uh, go. At one point, 40% of France had turned to the Reformed religion, and so that's very, very high. And some of the early kings were actually Protestants, right? So it's a very complex history. Uh, The great reversals in France were probably the greatest reversals, and so we can see large areas of France, blue, are Calvinists that had turned to the Reformed faith. Way up here, other areas uh, in here, which it's not showing, so again, I'm not even happy with this map. Uh, Areas of Scotland, of course, uh, but uh, we'll we'll look at some of these things that go. Okay, Luther. One of the seven electorate areas out of the 300 or 400 was a large area called Saxony. Saxony was growing rapidly in the north. Uh, The Hanseatic League, Hansa, uh, like Lufthansa, (laughs) the Hansa of the air, the airline, Hansa was an economic trading alliance of the Baltic states, the North Sea, and so areas like the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, so forth, are benefiting from this alliance economically and becoming very, very wealthy uh, in the latter part of the Renaissance, whereas uh, Florence and Italy had been very wealthy in the early part of the Renaissance. So the idea is switch north, uh, places in Belgium, uh, like Bruges, uh, are one of the wealthiest places ever, right? So this is a very wealthy area. So Saxony is also benefiting from this. And the rise of universities are such that early on, a few were in Italy. Then we have Cambridge and Oxford in England. We have finally Paris, uh, eventually Leuven uh, in Belgium. Uh, and then they're starting to spread. Well, the Germans are very proud of their universities, and Wittenberg uh, was one of the ones that they're very proud of. Um, Frederick the Wise now is part of this politics of these seven electorates. Add that to the growing papal power, right? So this is going to be a big fight with three archbishoprics and four secular groups. Uh, The weight of evidence is going to go toward the papacy, who is, of course, in cahoots with the three archbishoprics as well for power in the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, We see that um, Frederick the Wise is sort of his own man, though. It's an interesting kind of guy. He's Mordecai. He has one of the best relics collections in all of Europe. I mean, uh, Erasmus later on in Praise of Folly said, there's so many pieces of the cross that uh, pilgrims have found that if we put them all together, we could build a flotilla that could beat the Spanish Armada. You know, so it's like okay, you know, and each of these relics had uh, power to them, right? Leftover legacy of power. So Frederick the Wise starts out as a kind of not so devout, but economically involved in the relic uh, trade, but gets sucked into the. 
the scholarly world through his young Martin Luther. He's very proud of his Wittenberg uh, University, too. So that's where Martin Luther is a monk there. Um, one of the things that touches off a protest, because, of course, Protestants are protesters in the beginning, right? And like the term Christian, which was derogatory, very often derogatory words become the very thing that you're willing to die for later on. Um, There's a fundraising campaign. Now, indulgences in the Middle Ages were an attempt to say, how are we sure that you as a religious believer are indebted and working for the church? Uh, During the Crusade, many left their home and went to fight the Crusade in southern uh, Europe, went to the Middle East. The idea was if you can't go, perhaps you can support someone who could go. (laughs) And early on, any kind of action that you took that showed your seriousness toward Christianity without really the spirituality and devoteness behind it, Uh, they came up with this idea that you could get a piece of paper saying, uh, you've done this sort of deed which is pleasing to the church and pleasing to God, and this letter of indulgence is a sort of proof uh, that you've sort of done something. Now, of course, in our world, uh, you donate uh, a wing to a hospital, you get your name on it, right? So it's a a sort of a human nature that we want to be honored for the big things that we've done. For a long time, indulgences were not really an issue. It was something the church was uh, working on, and we could go through all kinds of things like introduction of purgatory and and those sort of things. But in particular, in the warrior pope, Julius II and others who are coming, uh, the interest of many of the popes was to become a powerful monarch now as France and England are growing and the threat that uh, the Great Schism had. So there's a lot of energy going on in Italy, and they need to raise a lot of money. <laughs> and so what happens is Johann Tessel, who's a Dominican monk, was sort of given free hand to say, don't worry, Pope, I got this one. You know, I, I'll, Don't worry, I'll bring more money in than you uh, can shake a stick at. I've got my own means to do this. Now, of course, we can look at the 1970s and 80s television preachers, you know, uh, Baker and others, right, who were very good at uh, raising money as well for religious purposes. Well, uh, Tessel is sort of this modern-day person. He goes up there, and he has plays and shows put on with fire and actors, and, and they give all kinds of testimonies to how hard it would be to burn in hell and all these sort of things, and these mystery plays become part of this uh, um, in, in the low countries, too, Reiter uh, they call them, and their, their whole passion plays that are going on. And it's, it's sort of theater like television, right, and, and everything else going on. So uh, he raises a lot of money, and, of course, what starts to happen is these things are bought and sold. Uh, not far from the relic industry that, uh, that um, the Duke had had, but Luther puts his foot down, and sort of like uh, the lesson we've heard today, uh, the Duke also begins to put his foot down uh, in the origin. So basically in uh, 1715, 
you've heard of the 95 Theses. Well, uh, in those days, newspapers, right, 1450 Gutenberg, but there's a few books are being done, but not much, right? If you want it to proclaim something to your city or town, you posted it usually on the cathedral or chapel door because everybody passed there and like uh, notices perhaps in stop and shop for, you know, <laughs> something you see on the side, you would read those notices. And so it wasn't odd for Luther to post his 95 theses um, on the door. And in the beginning, Luther as a monk is only trying to correct the abuses. He has no problem with the idea of papacy, is no problem with many things, even indulgences really at first. And all he wants to do is protect this. But little by little, as the uh, Catholic Church is unwilling to dialogue with him at all, uh, they're busy in their military and economic exploits. Uh, Even later on, uh, the Roman Catholic Church will confess many of these things they weren't ready for. Uh, Luther then says, why does the pope whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of Crassius, right, one of the old uh, Roman emperors, built the Basilica of St. Peter with the money of poor believers rather than with his own money, right? Uh, now, there's all kinds of subtle things about keeping money in Saxony anyway. Why should money go all the way down to Rome and not come back? And uh, we are still, as human nature, uh, concerned about where our tax dollars go. So it wasn't anything uh, different back then as well. Eventually, it comes down to, and I'm jumping way forward, Luther has to, in uh, 1520, defend his statements that he's made because his statements obviously have become very, very important. So here we have uh, Pope Leo in a papal bull, Exurge Domine, points out 41 errors in Luther's 95 theses. That in itself could be a research paper. You only got 41 of my 95? I must be on the right track, right? So that could be a whole other thing. But in this case, it's a kind of a kangaroo court. Uh, The emperor didn't think Luther was going to walk away from this. It was a sort of a show trial. Frederick the Wise, however, again, stood up maybe for his own uh, social, economic, political reasons, a little bit of that, right? But we think... Right, He had some righteousness and God was using him. And so he decides, I'm going to thwart the plan of the emperor and the pope. And so as Luther was heading home, and of course he was going to be arrested uh, by the papal forces and the emperor, uh, Frederick the Wise sets up a kind of phony uh, uh, group of pirates uh, and come along and they capture Luther and they act like he's taken hostage. But of course, they bring him to uh, a castle where he's hidden out for a while. And so Frederick is very proud and he goes to Wartburg. Go forward. Um, Last week, we talked about the Renaissance. Humanism is not a set of beliefs, but a method to recover the wisdom of the ancient world. Uh, Things like philology, the study and history of languages, uh, and the meaning of words. So as a humanist, as a Christian humanist, 
uh, in this sense, because you can use the word humanism in the 21st century and it could have a different meaning. Uh, in this case, though, as a humanist, the method was more inductive. In other words, I need to study the scriptures, and in the scriptures, it ought to tell me certain things. Uh, if you tell me deductively that uh, here's an authoritative statement, but you can't show me where it is in Scripture, then I don't have to believe it, right? So we've got a struggle uh, in uh, scholarship going on as well. So he says, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, see the part of reason coming in, which is the humanism as well, I do not accept the authority of popes or councils. And it's interesting he adds councils in there because, as I said, the papacy going for the power and the council going for the power are two equal political parties going on in the Catholic Church as well at the moment. For they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. So a great statement there. Um, Luther uses natural law. Now, one of the things I want to point out to, because we, I have to save my time. I, I only have like 15 or 20 minutes left. I need to get to Calvin, okay? One of the things I'm going to try to show you, though, is while we believe Cal, Luther started things off. In some ways, Calvin's going to say, great, but you didn't go far enough, right? Now, one of the things he didn't go far enough was is that we saw, as I showed you, church government. Luther was beholding to Frederick the Wise and doesn't quite cut the same strings as, Luther's, uh, as Calvin's going to do when he breaks away as well. Now, in this case, though, Luther uses natural law, as does Calvin, as does many others, uh, to say a prince uh, must decide in his own mind when and where to use the law, must be applied strictly or without, with moderation, so that reason may always control all law and the highest law and rule over all. So it's very important that they start arguing for natural law. Why? Because prior to the Reformation, the papacy and even the early states could claim divine right of kings, which really meant they, they weren't talking yet about natural law, which meant the law of God was sort of tied up with a, a, a very small number of people who could interpret the law of God up there somewhere, right, mediate it through the church and divine right of kings. Getting to the platform now of natural law, it meant that all humanists could, philosophers could start studying natural law. And of course, above natural law was God's law. But it was, again, another area where it was now open for discussion. So the whole natural law thing, we could have eight weeks on that just as well, uh, and the importance for natural law and, and Christianity uh, and so forth. But uh, so Luther transforms, transfers leadership on many religious issues from Rome, but to princes, right? And so that's going to be an issue still later on. There's still hierarchy there, uh, contrasts. Okay, move on. Hey, so uh, I want to also, I'm going to have to show the context of Calvin and then his doctrines. So here's the doctrines I think that are most important of Luther. You've heard of the solas, right? So alone, uh, his justification by faith came from a careful study of the book of Romans, as you know, right? So Romans has a lot, and our sermon today, talking about obedience to kings and so forth, uh, is all there. Um, and already in Romans 1.17, for there 
in is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, after a lot of study, he, come, he comes up with three of the solas, sola, uh, sola scriptura, uh, sola fide, and sola gratia, right? So that's very, very important. Now, here's the contrast of his theology, what he's leaving at the time. So Roman Catholic thoughts. In contrast to both Luther and Calvin, uh, Roman Catholic doctrine taught cooperation with God, not total dependency on God. I mean, God is still God, right? But we're going to show how that works. First of all, in terms of justification by faith, um, venial sins uh, at the time were defined as forgivable. Uh, Partial loss of grace, we're going to find out why that's a partial loss of grace, but it can be paid by penance, right? Penance is acts that you do to show your seriousness, uh, your um, uh, showing that you're sorry and, and you're doing things. Indulgences fit into the practice of penance. There was many things of penance, pilgrimage, and, and so forth. Uh, so you could pay for venial sins through penance, right? And therefore, at one point, you feel like you're acceptable to God. God will make the choice in the end, but you're kind of hedging your bets so that you look good, right? You know, you've gone to the interview, and you've got your tie on, and your hair's combed, and right, you do all those things to be attractive to God uh, in uh, this. If you don't finish all your penance in this or, uh, world, in the late Middle Ages, we have the whole concept of purgatory. And I think only because of even Dante's Inferno, it just became a concept that they couldn't get out of their heads because Dante did such a good job. I mean, the movie was so good that it, it has to be real. I mean, like Disney World, right? We, anything we watch in history, if it's Moses, right, and it's, you know, whoever did it, right, uh, the movie's so good. And so I, I think, too, uh, there's a whole, uh, I've read some things about that, just the power of Dante to set things up. Uh, Galileo had a tough time because Dante was the one that picked up on Aristotle's view that it's a geocentric world, right? And it was the marketing of Dante which really hurt the church who might have come to heliocentric views a lot quicker, right? So we've got to leave it there. Uh, second major idea is the priesthood of all believers, often misunderstood, especially by Catholics. Like uh, you get the whole rhetoric all the way through. I'm working on 19th century Ireland right now with a lot of Catholic and Protestant back and forth. And it's like priesthood of all believers. Oh, that means any Protestant could read their Bible and it could say anything they want it to say. That's priesthood of all believers seen from the other side, right? So we don't know it that way. Uh, especially in the Reformed idea of it, but that's what it's often seen. Uh, in this case, though, it's a contrast. Um, baptism, um, let's, let's move on. Okay, So here's part of this um, idea of sin, though. Uh, in baptism, uh, they call it concupiscence. It, it, it means that although original sin is washed away in baptism, uh, there's an inclination to sin. Um, it's not sin until actualized, however, right? Uh, original sin does not completely corrupt human uh, rationality, and that's really sort of where it starts for Luther and Calvin. Um, in the fall, uh, we're going to see uh, Calvin especially talks about total depravity, not that 
there's no common grace, right, but that each area has been affected. In Roman Catholicism, uh, they say um, only um, uh, in the fall, uh, only the, it, it only corrupted the supernatural um, in humanity, but what it leaves is human reason has not been corrupted by the fall, so therefore you can cooperate with God, right? So, and, and therefore you have to show through penance, because reason has not been totally corrupted, that in fact you're cooperating with God. So that's one of the issues there as well. Um, I know I have to sneak in a little bit of art each time I go. So uh, Lucas Cranach, it's very interesting. Uh, there were visuals of this, right? A lot of the things we're looking at on textual things uh, you didn't see for most of the people, but here we have on the right side the Lutheran view of coming to Christ, and on the left side, of course, the fear of hell, uh, penance, uh, the law, right, uh, being very strict here, uh, Adam and Eve, uh, God is way off in heaven, right, whereas in this case, Jesus is right here among us, right, so this is a, of, of course, uh, uh, showing a Lutheran viewpoint. Um, law and gospel. I'm looking at my time. I've got to go forward. I have to sneak this one in too. Great picture. Um, it's again propaganda. On the uh, this side are the Protestants, um, and they're they're fishers of men, right? So this is the idea. And so getting into the boat here, saving everybody's happy. The trees are growing nice over here. The rainbow's nice over here. The the Catholic side. The trees are withering, and uh, many people aren't getting saved. And there's, you know, there's a new uh, 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 prison over here, and so forth. So back and forth we went, and so forth. We have to go for it. Okay, Calvin. Looking at my maybe ten minutes. Is, did Preston come in? Can I have five more? Uh, okay. So Coke. So so Calvin. Calvin is a lawyer. He's not a monk. <laughs> Very different. Calvin's a lawyer. He goes to Paris, old university, several colleges in the, in the university, uh, studies there. It's very big. His teacher, Jacques Lefebvre de Tablet, had studied in a Brethren of the Common Life school and was influenced uh, French versions of the New Testament. Uh, Calvin himself studied law several places. Two things uh, got him kicked out of Paris. First of all, there was um, radicals, he wasn't part of that, who were anti-Catholic. Uh, they took the reform too far and wanted to fight it with violence. And so they actually breached the security even of the door of the uh, king one time, posted something, and the king got really afraid that things are getting out of hand. So that's one thing. The other side, though, is Nicholas Kopp, university rector, was preaching reform, and there was uh, political parties within this, and of course, he convinces the king that the humanists are the problem, and so they flee to Basel together. Basel, of course, is modern-day Switzerland. In Basel, uh, Luther, uh, sorry, Calvin, uh, of course, uh, writes his famous book, outside of probably Augustine's City of God or, or Aquinas's Summa Theologia, uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion are very thorough. It's written by a lawyer who's become a philosopher, theologian. A lot's there. Um, 
he decides to leave Basel and go to Strasbourg, which is a thriving reform place. Um, and he rests in Geneva for a little bit with his friend William Farrell. And they're going to stay there just briefly, and he doesn't. He stays for a whole year instead. Uh, becomes a pastor, uh, but the problem is um, in one year, uh, Geneva doesn't like the kind of reform that he wants, so he gets kicked out of the city. So, so again, then he ends up back in Strasbourg uh, for a couple of years. In Strasbourg, we have fair, uh, many others. Now, I'm talking about Luther and Calvin. I have to say behind Luther and Calvin are 30 reformers, who each of which we could talk about and have a whole session on. They're so important. Uh, in terms of Lutheran side, however, Luther was very, very strong. That's why we have the Lutheran church. Um, properly said, although it's, we talk about Calvinism, uh, Calvin was up there, but shared the limelight, unlike Luther, with many others. So it's proper to call it Reformed, not really Calvinism. But because Calvinism has been so important in the modern world, oftentimes those who don't like the Reformed zero in on, oh, it's just Calvinism, kind of like the way uh, Wesleyan started out of the uh, Methodist church. Oh, they're just Methodists, you know, and so eventually it sticks, they're a Methodist church. So uh, Calvin gets his feet wet right now. He's in a pastoral situation. Here's a lawyer, right, great mind, writing the Institute of Christian Religion. Now he's doing, you know, boots on the ground. Uh, 400 people in four different, uh, three different churches uh, preach twice on Sundays, Communion celebrated monthly. Congregational singing of psalms are encouraged. Now, Luther, uh, Calvin wanted the Eucharist every Sunday, right? So unlike the history of even Presbyterian Reformed churches, I'm glad that our church is back to Calvin, so who wanted it every Sunday, and many didn't want that. So uh, Calvin then is loaned by Strasbourg back to Geneva, but he never does leave. So he's never in control of where he's going to minister. Uh, here's old Geneva, beautiful place. It's all protected here, uh, and so he goes to Geneva itself. Geneva eventually becomes La Rome Protestante, right? It's really known as a very, very important place, and I love the motto, post-tenebrae lux. Um, I think I told you two weeks ago that any time you see uh, the shield of a city that has a key in it, it means that it has a cathedral named St. Peter because the original uh, St. Peter, right, so uh, from Rome, and so there's a key. The other thing you see on this is that Geneva was a free city, right? Switzerland doesn't uh, belong. Even today, they call it la vie de Genève, la République de Genève, et le canton de Genève, right? So it's, it's actually all three things. It's actually it's, its own republic, even though it's part of Switzerland, right? So, which is a confederation, not a federation. So uh, the other thing you see there is a half eagle, which meant it, it was given its freedom from the Holy Roman Empire, which had a two-headed eagle. Two-headed eagle, the spiritual sword and the temporal sword, right? And so the eagle from Rome, and hence the second Rome is the Holy Roman Empire. Interesting that Americans chose the eagle. We could have a whole discussion of that later on uh, as well. So 
Originally, there's only 13,000 people. Protestant refugees uh, bring up 6,000. But these are not the poor. Right? As I said, what's appealing uh, in those who remain in Catholicism, head toward Lutheranism, head toward Anabaptism, uh, it's usually quite the bourgeoisie, uh, wealthier people. So they show up uh, in Geneva. Many become pastors, go back into, uh, into France, start churches, and then start sending them all over the place, like John Knox going back to uh, Scotland, of course. Um, if you ever go there, there's a huge monument. These things are about uh, probably 25 feet high, and they uh, honor the uh, different, um, uh, the different uh, uh, people there. Okay, I'm going to take five minutes. Okay, so here's Calvin's theology building on Luther, right? So building on Luther with some slight changes. Overall, though, right, you get an idea from the preaching even in this church that it's not that Luther doesn't stress God's sovereignty, but in the Reformed churches, it's brought to the highest level of any Christian church about God's sovereignty, and there's implications of all that as we go. First of all, Calvin wants to clear away uh, all mediating religious uh, things uh, and uh, have only the word of God in Scripture. Catholic hierarchy uh, had uh, much more of that. Secondly, clear away all earthly political alliances uh, that dictate religious practice. Um, he looked at Luther's situation with the elector of Saxony. Rather, Calvin established new ideas uh, and so forth that uh, have far more influence on, uh, let's say, America and any other uh, separation of church and state uh, situation uh, later on. Uh, justification by faith alone, like Luther, uh, but more stress on the total depravity uh, of human nature. But the flip side, and of course, here's another thing you get: oh, the Calvinists, you know, oh, they're they're. I, I have to be a Calvinist sometimes in my Catholic institution. Oh, what does Roney think? You know, oh, the Calvinists, they, oh, they're they're dire. You know, people are people are really bad. John, are people really that bad? You know, so I get this kind of back and forth. But they don't see that the flip side of total depravity is incredible grace by God, right? So I always have to say, well, if, you know, the, let, let's, let's talk mathematics here, right? So if you're a little better, it means you don't need as much grace from God, right? And they look at you like, okay, well, let's talk about that. So back and forth we go, right? Now, uh, Calvin's the one that stresses predestination more. Now, Thomas Aquinas and Luther and many others would look at, predestination, although today in the church that's another kind of hit you take as a Calvinist uh, reformed, but at the time predestination was something everyone would admit, right? Um, sacraments, so I think I'm going to have to quit after this, um, but I have a lot of other slides on here that's sort of like an appendix. If you go online, it's all up there, okay. Uh, what's the difference here? Uh, as you know, Catholic uh, understanding of, this, of the Eucharist, uh, Lord's Supper, uh, transubstantiation, the real change in the body and blood of Christ, uh, not merely a sign. Uh, I, um, I find it kind of interesting today that when I go, I, I observe a lot of Masses, and probably even at Sacred Heart, where there's hundreds taking Mass, probably 95% will only take the bread now and not touch the wine. So there's a whole other thing going on in the church, and I, I don't have a straight answer, only like, well, we could get a cold because somebody's drinking from the cup on the other side. I'm thinking, well, 
the transformation didn't happen, I suppose, you know, right? So, we, you know, you can go back and forth. Lutherans are sort of between a sacramental union. Uh, in this case, now here's, here's these words are very important. The, the sacrament is a sign of a spiritual presence, but in this case, the thing signified locally so that Christ is bodily present in the Lord's Supper, right? Now, for the Reformed, real presence would be a, a better way to say it. The sign and thing signifies is inseparable in this case, but united spiritually rather than locally and bodily. So Calvin says, flesh and blood of Christ feeds our souls just as bread and wine maintain and support our corporeal life, right? So there's a mystery uh, that they uh, talk about there, right? I've run out of time, but you can see I'm going to have a lot more and nice pictures uh, of and confessions and where everything comes from and everything. So I just, you know, I've run out of time. (laughs) 